Well, my name is Alex Culpepper. I am the lead pastor at Alliance Bible Church. And Alliance is just uh, about uh, a mile that way on Stearns Road. Uh, I used to work here at Village Church and uh, was, was on staff, and then I became the lead pastor over there. And we're, uh, so Alliance is actually in the book of First Peter as well. So we're, we're doing First Peter along with Village Church of Bartlett and Village Church East. And, and so as we were all kind of working on this together, we decided, hey, why don't we all just kind of swap places. And so, uh, so Craig is preaching at my church, my, Michael's preaching at Village Church East, and I get the joy of, uh, of coming back home in a way to, to Village Church. And so, so I'm really grateful to be here. I tell you, every time I get to come to Village Church, it really makes my heart full. So thank you. Thank you for having me here this morning. Uh, today we have a joyful topic. We're continuing the theme of submission. So buckle in for that because that's going to be good. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And before we dig into that, I want to uh, just kind of tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, have you guys heard of the Enneagram before? It's not like, oh my goodness, this again. Uh, so, uh, so I am uh, on the Enneagram. If, well, first of all, let me tell you just a little bit about the Enneagram. I've heard some people talk about it in some different ways to phrase it. And the best description I've ever heard of the Enneagram as a personality test is it's, it's all about how you're broken as a human being. The Enneagram is all about how you're broken as a human being and how you, uh, how you overcome that brokenness. So, so for what that's worth, uh, I am a type nine on the Enneagram. Uh, I am what is called the peacemaker. And, and what that means is that I am like my type is the most naturally good at submission in all of the worst ways. So, uh, so I'll give you some examples of what that means. In moments where, where type nines are supposed to maybe speak up and stand for something, uh, we tend to keep our mouths shut. Okay, so uh, when people need us to be present with them, to sit with them in certain moments, what we tend to do is we tend to make ourselves invisible. Uh, when we are needed to respond in the middle of a conflict, we really, we, we hate conflict. Nines don't enjoy conflict at all. And so we tend to shut down in the middle of conflict. So, so what this means for me is that I tend to operate, like if I'm just given uh, to my natural tendencies, I tend to operate out of a fear of simply inconveniencing people. Like if I, if I am an inconvenience to you, that was like the worst thing for me in the world. So I do everything to avoid becoming an inconvenience to people. And this, this leads to uh, nines. We, we kind of become doormats. Uh, we go along to get along. Like this is, we kind of let life and all of its troubles just happen to us. And, and sometimes what we do is we even, like we even deny legitimate problems. It's kind of like this. So, uh, so we, we're sitting in the middle of a burning building and, you know, we're just like, hey, go with the flow. This is okay. This is fine. Everything's going to work out. Don't make waves. Just kind of comply with whatever situation you're in, right? Like this, and this is who I am naturally. Like all of my instincts operate like this. Okay. So you, you understand this about me. So then... When I, when I understood that there was actually a Christian value on submission, what happened was my idea of submission became more informed by all of these natural ways that I was wired than it was informed by scripture. 
So actually what had to happen is I had to go through this period of time, this course of God rewiring my mindset, rewiring my thinking on submission because my idea of submission came more from my own personality baggage than it did from scripture. So I want to tell you a story of how this played out. Uh, this, this false idea of submission that I had in my head, it, it made my life really, really challenging. So I had this friend in college, and we'll call him Dave. And Dave, uh, Dave was a really good friend to me. He loved me, but I will tell you, he despised my faith. He did not like the fact that I was a Christian at all. And so, uh, so this is what uh, happened between Dave and I. Uh, uh, what happened was uh, I thought that in, in my relationship with Davis, he would like ridicule me. I thought like my solution was just to kind of keep quiet. I thought as, as he would kind of uh, make fun of my faith, as he would kind of bash my faith in different ways, I thought my only solution was just to kind of like not do anything about it, just to kind of sit there and take it. In fact, like now what happened with this is that this actually became like this took control of my emotional life because every time I would see Dave, I would get all of this anxiety inside of me, right? Because he would, I I would just know he's going to have something to say about this faith and how dumb it is that I believe this. And, and, And so I would get really nervous around Dave. I would not enjoy being around him. And, and, and I kept responding. I thought like my only solution is to keep responding in this sort of go with the flow manner. Like, this is what it meant to be submissive in my mind. And this understanding of submission really as passivity, as, uh, as just kind of going with the flow, as not making waves, this was creating more problems for me than it should have been. So, uh, so here was my error. I want to talk to you about the error in my thinking. Uh, here, uh, so I thought biblical submission means weakness when actually it offers power. I thought biblical submission faults to fragility when actually it makes a stand in strength. I thought it required me to be a doormat when actually what it requires of me is to be a pillar. So you know what? The Lord has, he's had to reshape my understanding of submission. He has been reshaping my understanding of submission from one that would make me a victim in some situations to one that actually makes me effective. So, uh, so we're in First Peter chapter three, verse eight, and I just want to give you an update on on what we've been talking about. Peter, as he's been talking about submission, he has been kind of laying out for his audience his value for submission, how important submission is. That submission is like one of the most important tools in the Christian's t- tool chest. And he's answering a particular question. This question is really important because these Christians, they've been kicked out of their homes. They've been uh, forced into situations that they don't love. Society not only sees them as an inconvenience, but as a threat. And so, so Peter's trying to answer this question for them. How do we live in a society that killed our Savior and hates us? How do we live in this society? What hopes do we have of actually being effective? And so, so over the last few weeks, Michael's been talking to you about this word hupatasso. And hupatasso is the word for submission, for deference, for subjection, for this, this thing that we do where we bend the knee to other authorities. And so, uh, so at, the, at its core, what hupatasso is, it, it, it's a willingness, a willingness to yield to another's authority or will, which means I don't get my way, but they may end up getting their way. 
Okay, so, so that's the idea. That's the idea that Peter has been laboring on. And let's just like look at the ways that he's been emphasizing submission through this text. So, so uh, in, in 2.13, this is what he says. He says, be hupatasso, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 2.15, for this, for this submission is the will of God. Then he says, servants, be subject to your masters, hupatasso. For this, hupatasso, you have been called. Wives, be hupatasso to your husbands. And then again, he comes back, likewise. Whenever he says likewise, he's just drawing on that thought. He's pulling that thought back down. Husbands, be hupatasso to your wives. Finally, and then in in 3.8, what he's doing now is he's summarizing everything he has to say on this subject. He says, finally, so it's implied he's still talking about submission. He's still talking about hupatasso. He says, all of you. And when he goes on, this is what he says. He says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So I just, I want to revisit some training that Michael has done with you guys because I want to just solidify this idea of submission and where it applies to. And so Christians are called to submit in three very different ways. The first, the first place or the first way that they're called to submit is to unbelieving institutions. Institutions uh, like the government, like the police force, teachers, other authorities in our life. That's the first place Christians are called to submit. The second place is to spiritual authority. We see in scripture that God endows spiritual authority to various places. First of all, he is the highest authority, right? But then we also see that he gives husbands authority over their wives, that, that there's a, an authority structure there, that there's an authority structure in the family, that, that, that uh, uh, kids are called to submit to their parents, that the church is called to submit to elders. He endows various places with spiritual authority. And then the third place that, that he calls us to submit is to other believers. So this is called, we refer to this as mutual submission, a kind of bending of the knee to, to one another, uh, a recognition that we might have to set aside our preferences for one another, right? So these are the three categories. And in this passage, Peter sums all of it up uh, by calling them to an overall attitude of submission and deference in all of their relationships in society. So he, and what he wants them to do, what he understands is that there is power available in the ways that they submit. That, that this, this tool of submission, that if they actually add it to their tool chest, in the society that hates them, it will become really, really useful for them. So he doesn't just see it as like an unfortunate result of the Christian life, but he sees it as the very means by which the Christian life is lived. He wipes out all of their false ideas of submission, and he actually helps them to understand the power that is in it. And so he says, hey, hey, you oppressed Christians, listen up. I have something to share with you. You have a powerful tool at your disposal. So are you going to use it? And this is his big, big idea. This is his main point in the passage. This is the thing that we're really going to center our focus on this morning. He wants to talk about real submission. Real submission is powerful and effective. Real submission blesses trusts and risks. Real submission blesses trusts and risks. Village Church, repeat after me. Real submission blesses. Oh, uh, real submission blesses. Real submission trusts. And real submission risks. We got to work on that, y'all. We got to work on that. It's all all good. It's all good. Uh, Okay, so quick note. 
Uh, you're used to, to ending, you're used to, Michael, ending sermons with the so what's. And if you're new here this morning, I'll just kind of explain to you what the so what's are. The so what's are, are the ways that we end the sermons just to kind of say, okay, uh, I've been up here talking for something like two hours and you need something to walk away with. Uh, you, need, you need to know what are you going to put on the ground. And so, so typically we end with the so what's. But I tell you today is actually the, the sermon is the so what's. That's actually how we're going to structure the sermon. So, so just a heads up for those of you who use the so what's to know that the sermon is about over, you're not going to have any kind of time marker today. So just be aware of that. Uh, you will have no idea when I'm going to end. So, so let's just be, be uh, comfortable in that. Okay, so 1 Peter 3.8. So what, number one, real submission blesses. So finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So when he says all of you, he's talking about the ways that they relate to each other. He's talking about mutual submission, submission in the church. Like, so this is what we do in the church. Like when we submit ourselves to one another, when we bend the knee to one another, we work to think the same things. Unity of mind. We actually, like, we try to understand each other. We try to have empathy for one another. We try to see where the other person is coming from, even if we don't immediately understand it. We operate towards each other with a humble heart and an assumption that I am not most important here, that I am not the best, that I don't have the most information, but that, that my brothers and sisters actually have something that I need, and because of that, I'm going to bend the knee. I'm going to try to understand my brothers and sisters. So, so in the church community, this is what we do. We set aside our preferences for the sake of our brothers and sisters. This is how we operate in mutual submission, because this is what we believe. That what we need together is more important than what I want, right? So this is why we submit to one another. What we need is more important than what I want. So this is the idea of mutual submission that he digs into. And then in verse 9, he goes on talking about the different ways that submission plays out. He says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So we're talking about this idea of hupatasso. And, and Michael has said this over the past few weeks uh, a little bit. He has referred to how hupatasso is to actually do the opposite of all of your impulses. Right? That, that actually we're inclined, we, we're inclined to operate certain ways. And what we have to do is kind of reject those ways that we operate and do something opposite. So I have some questions for you. What is the opposite of hatred? Oh, good, you guys got that one. Because we might tend to think that the opposite of hatred is not hatred. That it's like a zero. Like the opposite of negative 10 is zero, but it's not. The opposite of negative 10 is actually positive 10, right? So, so if all we do is result to passivity, that's not actually good. But, but, but we actually, we have to go on the positive side. We have to offer some kind of good. We have to offer blessing. And so the opposite of reviling is not passivity, but it's blessing. So I want you to imagine, you all have an idea of whoever this person is that I named for you, I promise you. I want you, you to imagine the person that just kind of irks you the most, the person that bothers you the most. Maybe you consider this person to be like an oppressive person in your life. If possible, maybe even uh, imagine some kind of authority in your life. Maybe it's a boss or something like that. And maybe it's past or present, but this person just drives you bonkers. They make your life really, really difficult. So when a believer is treated poorly, 
we have to answer a very important question quickly. What do I want most in my relationship with this person? Like, what do I want most? Do I, do I want vengeance most? Because that's going to have a particular kind of response. Do I just want self-preservation? Like, is that the thing I want most? Because that's also going to have a response. Or do, do I actually want transformation for the person that's making my life difficult? What's your answer? Because whatever your answer is, it's going to determine your next decision. So if you want vengeance for the person, you know what you're going to do? You're going to revile when they revile. You're going to do the whole eye for an eye thing. Like, that's going to be your choice. If you want self-preservation... You know what you're going to do? You're going to take like the the Enneagram 9 route. You're going to take my route. You're going to be passive. But if you actually want transformation, you're going to choose to bless. If that's what you want to see for this person making your life difficult. So uh, verse 10, it goes on and explains this. It fleshes it out a little bit. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So real submission, it's, it's not just like not rebelling against hateful people. It's not just like quietly going along to get along, but it is actively meeting their hate with love. Jesus actually, he articulates it like this. Matthew 5, 38 to 41. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist. It's another way of saying submit to the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Like he's saying, develop, understand, have a vision for the the blessing of the person who is oppressing you the most. If they try to take one thing from you, give them two things. So let's, let's look into what Peter's really saying, because he is saying, like, you need to have a solid idea of what it's going to look like for the person who is oppressing you to be blessed. So, uh, so let's just develop a vision for blessing here. And I have three questions for you to, to develop a vision for blessing for these oppressive people in your life, whoever they might be. Three questions. Number one, how does God use me to bless my family and church? So if you're trying to figure out how to bless the people in your life who are making your life difficult, I would just ask yourself the question, how, how is God already using me to bless people? Can you use those gifts to bless those more oppressive people in your life? Number two, What needs do they have that I can fulfill? Everybody has holes in their life. Everybody has places that that need to be filled. And so, so what needs do they have? How can you step into their life in a tangible way? And number three, how can their life be better because I'm in it? What can I do to actually improve this person's quality of life, even when they're making my life difficult? And here's my prayer this morning, because I, I found myself asking, like, if, if we just walked away and did one thing, I thought, what if this catalyzed every single person in this room to take ownership of blessing the most oppressive people in their lives? Like, what if we actually did that? What if we actually cared about seeing good things for the people who don't want us around? What could happen? You know, and, and maybe not all of us have an oppressive person, but we all have probably somebody who doesn't like us at the very least. So let's, let's take the opportunity to bless them. Okay, so this is what Peter understands. For people who live their lives like this, 
For, for people who actually step into blessing, this is what he wants to do. He wants to give them an encouragement. So in verse 12, this is what he says. So what, number two, real submission trusts. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in this, this passage, this is what Peter's doing. Every time he talks about righteousness, every time he talks about doing good, this is what he's trying to do. He's connecting that idea of righteousness and doing good to hupotasso, to submission, to the ways that we bless and care for those who are making our lives difficult. And this is what he's saying. He said, those of you who submit in certain circumstances, those of you who are working to advance good for your oppressor, you know what? You probably feel like nobody sees you. You probably actually feel like nobody recognizes your suffering. You may even feel like nobody understands your pain. But you know what? The Lord sees you. The Lord actually sees what you're dealing with. And this, this expression goes on beyond the, the Lord's simple recognition of what's going on. And when it says his eyes are upon you, his face is towards you, that's actually an expression of the Lord's favor upon you. So as you're going through whatever difficulty you seem to be going through, the Lord's favor is actively upon you. The Lord is working for you. He is on your side in this situation. So verse 13 says, now, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. So listen, we've talked about how just systems in the world, even systems that are set up for our good, that they can be broken. That, and they get broken because broken people operate them, right? And we recognize that. The people who run and operate them are broken. And so, so uh, it's understandable that, that the people that Peter is writing to, these people who have been kicked out of their homes by the government, it's actually understandable that they would be afraid of their government. It's understandable that they would be afraid of the people who are gathered around them, of of the mobs of people who actually don't want them around. It's understandable that they might even be afraid of the police force that's near them. Like, all of this makes sense. They live in a legitimately frightening situation. So uh, it's, it's kind of like what's happened in northern Syria. There are Kurdish Christians in northern Syria, and they have a question, and we have a, a picture of them up here. These Kurdish Christians in northern Syria, they, were, they had a question, and they, their question was this. As, as uh, Turkey, as the Turkish armies come in, are we going to flee? Are we going to run for our lives? Are we going to be afraid? Or are we going to stay and bless our communities? Are we going to help people stay safe? Are we going to invest in the good of the city as these armies come in? This is what these churches are actively asking. Because when the U.S. troops moved out, then then the Turkish army started coming in and everybody, all of these Kurdish Christians, all of the, the Kurd people in general, they were frightened for what was going to happen. And this church, I tell you, they were frightened too. But the decision that they made was that they were gonna stay that they were going to bless, that they were going to care for their community. And I tell you, so, so the Kurds, like when the Turkish armies came in, the Kurds, this part of the country that they lived in, they were hated. They were despised by the Turkish armies. Kurdish Christians hated even more. Like they have no good, tangible, logical reason to stick around, and yet they decide to stay around. And so imagine being them. 
and hearing these words from Peter, who is there to harm you? Who can actually hurt you? And if I were them, I'd be thinking, oh, I can think of about a thousand soldiers that are looking to harm me. But Peter says, what's the worst that they can do to you? Even if they break into your homes, even if they harm you, even if they harm your families. Like, here's a crazy thought. Peter actually believes that their eternity is secure in Jesus. He's utterly convinced of it. He's so convinced of it that there's not one thing. If they, if they harm your earthly body, big deal. Because you have a promise that is secure in heaven. And this is what Peter's doing. He's working so hard to ground them in their trust of God. To ground them in what God has actually promised in them. To give them this hope. Even if they make you suffer, who can really harm you? The answer is no, is no one. So that's what real submission requires. It actually requires us not to be doormats, but to be people whose, whose faith and trust is so strong in the Lord that we would be grounded as pillars when the whole world comes against us. So let's revisit my story, uh, my story with my friend Dave. Let's go back and talk to me at seven years ago. And, and, and in my relationship with Dave, and I have this faulty idea of submission. I, I get anxiety every time I see him. I get intimidation when he starts bashing my faith. I get this silent sulking at the name calling that he offers to me. And I, and I start avoiding him. I get all of this anxiety inside of me. And, and you know what I want to say to Alex, who is discouraged and defeated? I want to say, hey man, I know you feel rejected. I know you feel excluded. I know you feel ridiculed, but let's lift your eyes for just a second. Who is there to harm you? You know what? There's, there's no threat to your life. Sure, he might make you look bad in front of other people, but what can he really do to you? Where's your hope at? Is it in people liking you? Is it in you getting people's approval? Or is it in Jesus? Is it in what he offers you? Remember what he bought for you? Remember what he secured for you with his very blood? Put your trust there and your confidence there. Put your security there. Stand as a pillar in that. Like if I could go back and talk to myself, I would say these things. In Village Church, there are people in this room who need to hear this this morning. Real submission trusts Jesus for everything. Real submission trusts Jesus for everything. Okay, so Peter finishes his summary on submission with his last idea in verse 15. So what, number three, real submission risks. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, uh, so living as a Christian at its core is a social risk. You risk being the only person in your workplace who defends the dignity of the unborn. You risk your biblical convictions actually creating conflict in your relationships. You risk losing social status as a Christian. You risk losing influence. And this is a reality for biblically committed Christians. The risk, as the years go on, is only going to increase. The pressure is only going to rise. Uh, So... uh, 
my wife, uh, we, we, we were behind the game a little bit on the Instant Pot thing. Uh, and so we're, we're just now discovering the joys of an Instant Pot and, and how effective it is. And, and what we dif- discover with the Instant Pot is that it really brings out like the flavor of the, of the everything that's kind of in there. It kind of all mixes it together. And, and in some ways, like it's better than just cooking it on a stove because the stove doesn't bring out the flavor in the way that the Instant Pot does. Like the pressure just increases in all of these flavors mixed together. It brings out what the ingredients are made of. Right? Like, and this is like, this has been a great discovery for our family. We're having even better meals than we have before. It's fantastic. And so, so this is what the Instant Pot does. It brings out what these things are made of. And in the same way, as, as pressure rises in society, as, as it becomes increasingly a social risk for Christians to live as Christians, you know what it's going to do? It's going to bring to the forefront what Christians are really made of. People are going to discover it. People are going to see it. And when they see it, they're, they're going to have some questions. They're going to be curious because they're going to wonder what makes you continue to live this way when the rest of the world is going that way. And on top of that, you're still going to have to submit to and serve and love these people who are all making your life harder. And so people are going to notice. And so the question is, are you Christian ready for the conversations that are going to result from that? Can you explain how Jesus gave you hope when you were otherwise hopeless? Can you share the gospel of forgiveness and grace in Jesus with your neighbor? Will you be bold in warning people about the threat of judgment? Will you be bold in telling people that Jesus is the only way to hope and life with God? Can you say to these people who ask for a reason that, for the hope that is in you, can you say, Jesus was gracious to me. And because he was gracious to me, I strive, though imperfectly, to be gracious to all the people in my spheres of influence. Are you, pre- are you prepared to say that, that God gave me what I could not get myself, so I strive to live according to whatever standard he calls me to? And are you ready to do this out of love for all of these people around you? To see them come to know the same Jesus that you know. It says, it says on top of this, and this is important, we can't just gloss over this. It says to do this with what? Gentleness and respect. You know, so, so living as a Christian, it creates enough social risk as it is. So when you decide to be a jerk, like in your faith and the ways that you defend your faith, that makes the risk go up even higher, right? You don't need to add more risk to what's already created. Devaluing others, condemning others, yelling at them, calling them idiots, like that's not the way that we operate, right? We do all that we do with gentleness and respect because you know what we actually believe? Every single person that we relate to is an image bearer. All of these people that we talk to, all these people we have conversation with, we seek to do everything with gentleness and respect because they bear on their souls the image of the creator of the universe. Verse 16 goes on. We do all this having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So you want to know the only way to have a clear conscience in the face of unbelievers, these people who want to oppress you, the only way to do it is hupatasso, 
is this real submission, submission that trusts God, submission that blesses other people, submission that is willing to risk. If I could re-articulate it, if I could just sum up all of this, Village Church, if your submission doesn't result in loving behavior, it is stopped short. So let me, let me finish my story for you, my story with my friend Dave. So over the years, the Lord has been shifting this idea of submission in me. And a few years ago, what happened is I actually started asking the question, okay, what if I actually strive to love him? What if I actually strove to, to like bless him, to be secure in my trust of God in all of my conversations with him? What if I actually strive to risk a little bit in our conversations? And so I, I certainly didn't do this perfectly. I still got anxious in my interactions with him, but, but I actually, I, I started asking the question, what does it look like to be intentional in this relationship? So let me tell you a little bit about Dave, because Dave had his own set of struggles. Dave pushed away almost every person who got close to him. That was just kind of his tendency. And on top of that, he had some past abuse that he hadn't dealt with, and, and that was challenging. And, and he was also fighting constantly a deep battle with depression. These were all the things that Dave was dealing with. And as the, as the Lord started changing me and my ideas of submission, God actually started working in my relationship with Dave. And you know what? Dave like apologized to me for all the ways that he had treated me. So there's that. But then over the course of the next few years, you know, like Dave's life was going to get harder. He, he was going to face more and more challenges. And what happened is there were actually multiple Christians in his life who stuck by his side through all of that, who actually sought to love him well, who cared for him, who, who recognized that, yes, he devalues their faith, but they're going to love him anyway. And so all these people who stuck around in his life, these several Christians, I tell you today that, that because of the lovingly submissive attitudes that these people had, Dave today is a believer in Jesus Christ. He trusts in the Lord because of the way these people loved him, the way these people came around. And I tell you, I was only a small part of that. Like I was still learning what this thing looked like, but all of these people, just lovingly submissive attitudes in all of this, Dave trusts in Jesus. He follows Jesus today. And I tell you, that is like, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen the Lord do, to work in somebody's life, to pull them out of that situation, out of that a neglect of God, out of that hatred towards Christianity. But the Lord did it. And nothing to me has displayed so clearly power that Christians actually have in their submission. This real submission, this loving submission, this blessing, trusting, risking submission. Submission like, like what happened to Dave when, when the Christians around, around him actually asked the question, how can I love him and not just deal with him? Okay, so then Peter, he finishes this this summary of submission. And what he does is he draws our attention to Jesus in verse 18. And in verses 18 to 22, they raise a few questions. So let's push pause on everything for just a second. We have to digress for a second. Michael and I, we were sitting, uh, we were sermon prepping this and we were like, okay, so all of this is about submission. And then in 18 to 22, this text like raises a ton of questions for Christians. There are a lot of really difficult questions. And so we said, well, what do we do with that? We said, well, we'll just... We'll just say, hey, 
can we take the next few minutes to answer some questions that come up in this passage? So verses 18 to 22, this is, this is what it says. In verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So I want to tell you, first of all, Christ, for us, was not only the model of submission, but he is the very means by which we submit. Because he submitted for our sakes, now we can submit for anybody's sakes, right? So Christ was the model and the means. So, uh, so let's ask the first question that comes up in this passage, and, and that is this, who are the spirits in prison? Who are the spirits in prison? There are, there are three options on the table that people talk about. Option one is that they are Old Testament saints. Option two is that they are actually demons. And option three are that they are Nephilim, which is a, a class of demons. And uh, this is actually a combination of, of options two and three. So there are, there, there's some kind of strong demons that apparently God had to restrain all the way back at the beginning of creation. And, and, and so when it says that we, he went and proclaimed to them, what's actually happening is that Jesus is coming to proclaim his victory to these spirits in prison. And that's, that brings us to verse 20. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So you might ask the question, okay, why did he go and proclaim to the spirits in prison. And this is why. He did it to declare his victory over the strongest of spiritually dark forces. So all the way, when he goes, when Jesus dies on the cross, he goes and proclaims to the spiritually dark forces, hey, you thought you were gonna overtake God's good creation, but let me tell you, you have no power. Because I have actually broken the power of sin that whoever believes in me can have the hope that they actually will overcome death. They, they will overcome all the darkness that you introduced. So he goes and lets these demons know, hey, you didn't win. I won. That's what he does. So, so Colossians 2.15 draws our attention to this, and this is what it says. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What actually this is referring to is as, as Roman generals would defeat armies, you know what they would do? They would tie up the armies of all of the people that they would defeat and they would lead them through the city so that everybody can look on them in open shame and look at the accomplishment that the Roman general had done. And that's what this is, this is saying that Jesus did that with all of those dark spiritual forces. He proved to them how powerful he was. When they thought they could overtake God's good creation, God proved them wrong. He did it. So it talks about Noah. He did it back in the flood. He showed them that they actually had no power over his creation. He would just wipe the whole thing out, right? Like he is going to show his glory in everything. But he even did it in the cross. And that's what it goes on to say in verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, question number three. How does baptism save us? Option one, is it water baptism? Is it this physical sort of dunking under the water that saves me? And I tell you clearly, no, that's not the case. This is only a symbol of what option two is, which is spirit baptism. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The Spirit takes up residence inside of you. 
and we say, yes, indeed, this is the substance of baptism. This is what baptism talks about, that we are actually washed clean. So, so what you need, you don't need a physical cleaning of sin. You actually need a spiritual cleaning. Because the physical, it can't cleanse the spiritual. Only the Holy Spirit actually has the ability to cleanse you, to cleanse our spiritual problem. The cross is the very means which promises this to us. And we're going to transition into a time of communion. And I tell you, the cross is the new flood and the new ark. The cross is the ark. The cross is the means by which we all can be saved from God's judgment, which is coming against sin. As Jesus stands there, he takes on himself the punishment for for anybody's sin, anybody who would believe in him. He takes on himself that punishment and offers the gift, the gift to be saved. And so, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, I'd invite you. The cross is the new, the new ark. Get on board with us. Jump in. Because the cross itself is also a flood. For anybody who rejects it, what we're told in scripture is that person will be damned. Anybody who rejects the cross, this is the means. It is at the same time God's judgment on sin for the believer and the unbeliever. It reveals to us that everybody who doesn't trust in Jesus... Everybody who doesn't trust in Jesus, they will have to face that judgment on their own. What are you going to do with the cross? What are you going to do with Jesus? Okay, so Peter brings this section on submission to a close. And this is what he does. He declares the supremacy of Jesus over everything in creation. Verse 22, Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there's another kind of internal question here, which is, who does Jesus think he is? Claiming to have authority over all creation? Claiming to actually be able to cleanse people from their sin? Well, if every angel and demon could actually tell you, you know what they would say? We can't do anything when it comes to Jesus. Jesus has all the power. Jesus is so powerful, and we all have to bend the knee in his presence. Even the most powerful of angels, even the most powerful of demons, they can't overtake Jesus. So, so we might be called to submission in our society today. But what we're promised is that one day, actually every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Every person, every part of creation will be in ultimate subjection to Jesus. So we come and, and we're going to celebrate communion in just a second. And in communion, we have the bread and the juice. And, and the bread and the juice, they are symbols to us of Jesus' victory. By the way, this is why we call communion a celebration. Because we know, had Jesus not gone before us and gone to the cross for our sakes, we would have no hope, but he has now actually won a victory that we could not obtain on our own. So he broke the powers of darkness. He went and proclaimed his victory to them, even when they tried to corrupt God's good creation. He gave of himself to every person who believes and trusts and follows him so that they might be made clean. So in a moment, this is what's going to happen. The ushers, they're going to take the plates and and they're going to pass out the bread and the juice. And the bread is a symbol to us. It's a reminder of Jesus's broken body. The juice is a reminder to us of Jesus's shed blood. 
And, and as both of these things take place, as both of these things happen, what they do is, is they tell us that if it were not for what Jesus did, we would have no hope. But because he did it, we do have hope. So, uh, so we practice an open communion here, which, and, and we believe that communion is a proclamation. It's a proclamation that our identity, our faith, our trust is in Jesus alone. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning and you're with us, we invite you, please partake with us. If you're not a believer this morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, we're really glad that you're here. But when the plate passes, we wouldn't want you to make a proclamation that you cannot make. And so as that plate passes, we just ask that you would let it pass by. We're going to take a moment of silence, and then after that moment of silence, we're going to sing together. We're going to sing in worship. And then after we sing, we'll, uh, we'll take the elements together. But, but for that moment of silence, I just want to encourage you as we think about submission. I want you to reflect with gratefulness over the ways that you have seen the powers of darkness defeated in your own life. And maybe there's some ways that you need to see the powers of darkness defeated. And I'd invite you to reflect on that in this moment of silence. But, but here's the thing that we celebrate this morning. Jesus has indeed defeated the powers of darkness for our sakes. So Village Church, let's reflect on that together.